For many people, one of the most enigmatic and mysterious parts of the life of Christ comes after his resurrection, when he spent 40 days teaching the apostles. What was the instruction that he gave them, and is there some way to learn more? Do any sources give us a window into that teaching? Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We're so glad you could join us as we talk about a lesson called, Ye Shall Be Witnesses Unto Me, which covers Acts chapter 1 through 5. Thanks to Paul Cardall for the music that starts and ends this podcast. The transcripts for the podcast can be found at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for a free subscription to Meridian Magazine that comes into your inbox each Monday through Friday. Please tell your friends about this podcast. Word of mouth is the only way they'll find us. Until this week, we have been studying the four Gospels, but now we launch ahead into Acts through Revelation, the second half of the New Testament. This covers a period of time from 34 to 64 AD, comparable to the 1820 to 1850 period in the Restoration. Latter-day Saint scholars D. Kelly Ogden and Andrew S. Skinner point out that the founding of the early church and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints align in an arresting way. They say, quote, The Lord Jesus Christ established his church in the meridian of time with an organization whose officers possessed his authority. The leading officers had been given the keys of the kingdom on the Mount of Transfiguration. The chosen leaders were involved in missionary work during his ministry. The church grew in membership and in organization during the Lord's 40-day ministry after his resurrection and dramatic changes were promised for the future. The knowledge and testimony of the resurrection and atoning redemption of the Savior and the blessings of the gift of the Holy Ghost were the moving forces behind the profound new zeal that spread throughout the Mediterranean world. Ogden and Skinner say, Though this book is called the Acts of the Apostles, it might be better to call it the Acts of a few of the Apostles. Acts can really be divided into two parts. Part 1 includes chapters 1 through 12. The center is Jerusalem and the main figure is Peter. Part 2 includes chapters 13 through 28. The center is Antioch and the main figure is Paul. Why did this record survive and become canonized and not the records of the other apostles? These BYU scholars say, The book of Acts is an inspired work of historical genius, mentioning no fewer than 54 cities and 34 countries, tracing the development of the Lord's true church from the small, provincial capital of the Jews, Jerusalem, through the Mediterranean world to the great seat of the Roman Empire, the dazzling city of Rome itself. The Roman Catholic Church in particular would have wanted this record preserved. Perhaps this is one reason the version of the book of the Acts of the Apostles preserved in our King James Version not only survived, but triumphed over the other books of the Acts of specific apostles such as are found among the compilations of the New Testament Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. A note here. If you're wondering what is New Testament Apocrypha and what is Pseudepigrapha, Apocrypha means hidden things or things put away. 
The New Testament Apocrypha are writings by early Christians that give accounts of Jesus' life and his teachings, or the teachings and lives of the apostles. They are not found in the 27 books that are canonized in the New Testament, though some in the early church found them useful, but not necessarily divinely inspired. They are put away because they are not in the canon or authorized books that are found in the Bible. Pseudepigrapha are falsely attributed works, texts whose claimed author is not the true author, or a work whose real author attributed it to a figure of the past. Acts is written by Luke and is addressed to Theophilus, which means friend of God or beloved of God. This may be a specific person, someone with an honorific title, or a general audience, meaning all who are friends of God. What he wants to make clear immediately, as do other of the apostles, is that Jesus was resurrected. One scholar said, Nothing in history is more certain than that the disciples believe that, after being crucified, dead, and buried, Christ rose again from the tomb on the third day. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he shewed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Latter-day Saint writer and historian Matthew Brown tells us that the Greek word translated as infallible proofs is a derivative of tekmerion, which means a sure sign, a mark, or a token. So this could better be translated, he shewed himself alive after his passion by many infallible tokens. This certainly speaks a great deal to us about his ministry after his resurrection. This idea of a 40-day ministry after Christ's resurrection has baffled some people, particularly because so little is revealed about it. Now, a word about the number 40. First, what a remarkable experience for the apostles to be taught by the risen Christ, who did not ascend for 40 days after the resurrection. 40, of course, might be a general number referring to a period of instruction and transformation, it is sometimes a time of testing. In Noah's time, the rain came upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for forty years, and of course, Jesus Christ had fasted forty days and forty nights in the wilderness when he went there to be with his Father. Despite the silence on the forty-day ministry, we do have hints about the content. In the first verse of Acts, remember, Luke says in summary about his gospel, that it was, quote, all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. This implies, of course, that he had more to teach. In verse 2, we learn that after the resurrection, quote, he had given commandments unto the apostles, end quote. In other translations, this is often given as instructions, or in the New Living Translation, further instructions. If we knew this information, it would be a treasure beyond price. Some apocryphal sources give additional hints, some of which are reliable and some which aren't. Latter-day Saint scholars Kent Brown and Wilfred Griggs noted, quote, Men throughout history have sought to create new and sensational information about Jesus, 
because the New Testament Gospels are rather precise and detailed in their descriptions of Jesus' miracles and teachings, most apocryphal writings do not attempt to add details to the period already covered by the Gospel narratives. Instead, many apocryphal works have concentrated on the youth of Jesus, the background of Mary and Joseph, and other related periods within the time frame of the New Testament." End quote. Of course, the 40-day ministry is one of those periods that has been an open invitation for invention. So how do we know what is true and not true? Luke states that during the 40-day ministry, the Savior spoke, quote, of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But there are only vague hints in other New Testament writings as to the nature and content of these teachings. The preaching of Jesus to the spirits in prison and the doctrine of baptism for the dead are two examples of teachings that best fit the context of Acts 1-3. Although few, if any, works pertaining to the 40-day ministry of Acts 1-3 were known a century ago, modern discoveries have produced a virtual library of such writings, according to Brown and Griggs. In addition, they say, the restored gospel provides Latter-day Saints with an opportunity to look for elements of truth in this literature with a better standard of comparison than is available to others. Although we cannot tell any more about the history or society of the people who wrote these texts than can the scholars, we can examine some of the traditions and beliefs in their writings and note how they correspond to our understanding of the gospel. This examination leads to greater insights into the nature of early Christianity than before possible and gives further evidence of the apostasy or rebellion within the church. Although the apocryphal writings found in the past century derive from many different geographical and theologically diverse sects, there are a number of themes common to virtually all the writings regardless of origin. The similarity of themes in these texts, despite the wide-ranging theological differences of the sects that use them, argues for their development out of an authentic historical and theological setting. It's all the more remarkable that these similarities occur considering the lack of many of these themes in the New Testament and early Christian literature. So what do we find in these apocryphal writings about the 40-day ministry that rings true? Though the apocryphal writings stem from many geographical and theologically diverse sects, there are a number of themes common to the writings, regardless of their origin. References to ritual abound in this large body of material. In addition to baptisms and sacred meals, there are also numerous references to washings, anointings, and special garments. In the Acts of Thomas, those who are baptized also request the seal from the Apostle Thomas, which consists of an anointing with oil. They speak of, quote, an account of a heavenly council, a war, and an expulsion of rebellious offspring of God. In them, Jesus explains that, quote, after his death, he went to the spirit prison and taught salvation to those who were there. Marriage as a requirement for those who would achieve the highest of the three heavens is a teaching found in the Gospel of Philip, and the sanctity of marriage is alluded to in other documents. This sounds familiar. One of the most common threads is that the teachings must be kept secret. Hugh Nibley wrote, All the 40-day teaching is described as very secret, delivered to a closed cult group. There is no desire to intrigue and mystify, however, but rather the clearly stated policy that knowledge should be given always 
but only to those who ask for it, with the corollary that the higher and holier a teaching, the more carefully it should be guarded. As, quote, the last and highest revelation, the teaching of the 40 days was top secret and has not come down to us. That's fascinating. Before Christ ascended into heaven, he told the apostles that, quote, they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which in fact would be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Then, however, their field of action is the whole earth. As Jesus said, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. They are called to missionary work. We often wonder what the Savior would say to us if he were here. Probably something similar. In Acts 1 we read, And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you unto heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. What a poignant moment that must have been for them. Of course they were gazing up into heaven and watching every last glance they could get of Jesus. This is particularly because Jesus had said that they were not to know when he would be seen again. Then they returned to an upper room in Jerusalem, possibly the same one where they had held the Last Supper. It is believed to be the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, known as the Mark who wrote the Gospel. Peter is definitely in charge as the new president of the church, and they chose a new apostle to take the place of Judas Iscariot. This new apostle who is called must be a witness with us of his resurrection, a requirement that holds to this day for the living apostles. Now, 50 days after Passover was the day of Pentecost. The feast in Hebrew is called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Harvest, Feast of First Fruits. It could not be more appropriate that this new beginning of the great harvest of souls, 3,000 baptisms on this day alone, should begin on the Feast of Harvest. It has only been this handful of days since Jesus was crucified But now we certainly see a new Peter with a new boldness, power, and confidence. Is it because he has seen the resurrected Christ? Because of the teachings of the 40-day ministry? Or because of additional power from the Spirit? Undoubtedly all three, but he will never again act out of any tendency to hang back. It is the third hour of the day, 9 a.m., and Jews of every nation are thronging the temple. In Acts 2 we read, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This rushing forth of power from the heavens sounds very much like the descriptions of what happened on the day the Kirtland Temple was dedicated on Sunday, March 27, 1836. In the evening meeting, 
Brother George A. Smith arose and began to prophesy when a noise was heard like the sound of a rushing mighty wind which filled the temple and all the congregation simultaneously arose being moved upon by an invisible power. Many began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Others saw glorious visions, and I beheld, Joseph recorded, the temple was filled with angels, which fact I declared to the congregation. The people of the neighborhood came running together, hearing an unusual sound within and seeing a bright light like a pillar of fire resting upon the temple, and were astonished at what was taking place. Eliza R. Snow wrote, The ceremonies of that dedication may be rehearsed, but no mortal language can describe the heavenly manifestations of that memorable day. Angels appeared to some, while a sense of divine presence was realized by all present. Ogden and Skinner said, Cloven tongues like as a fire is both a literal description and symbolic language. First, the apostles were on fire with language ability, able to speak in tongues, that is, in other languages, but not in meaningless gibberish. Second, the Holy Spirit is compared in Scripture to fire. Idiomatically, the apostles were on fire. Compare the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Did not our heart burn within us? And, your bosom shall burn within you in Doctrine and Covenants section 9. And finally, according to the prophet Joseph Smith, God dwells in everlasting burnings. This gift of tongues meant that people from all the nations who had come to Jerusalem heard the message that Peter gave as if it was in their own tongue. And we read in Acts 2, And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? We see that earlier in Christ's ministry, Jesus had breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. But now... They had the gift of the Holy Ghost and a constant companionship with this member of the Godhead. President Brigham Young said of the Holy Ghost, quote, I had only traveled a short time to testify to the people before I learned this one fact, that you might prove doctrine from the Bible till doomsday, and it would merely convince a people but would not convert them. You might read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and prove every iota that you advance, and that alone would have no converting influence upon the people. Nothing short of a testimony by the power of the Holy Ghost would bring light and knowledge to them, bring them in their hearts to repentance. Nothing short of that would ever do. On that Pentecost day, as the apostles spoke in tongues, some were in doubt, some were mocking, saying, These men are full of new wine. But nothing daunted the apostles, and Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. He will never again not lift up his voice to testify of Christ with such power from the Holy Ghost that many will be overcome with testimony. Standing beside all the apostles, he said, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is a bold declaration. Peter demonstrates through prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews have long awaited. And more than that, 
He is the very Son of God. This is all affirmed to them by a powerful spirit. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Pricked in their heart in Greek means pierced through, pained sharply, agitated vehemently. To their question, what shall we do, Peter sums up the first principles of the gospel in one phrase, quote, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. As we said, three thousand souls were baptized that day. We can only imagine the commotion among the Jewish leaders who had sought so hard to destroy the work of Christ as to crucify him. At another time, Peter and John are at the temple at the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, when they saw a man, lame from his mother's womb, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to beg. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, this lame man asked for alms. Peter answered, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. What a scene! Peter has healed this man in the only way one can be healed, in the name of Jesus Christ. This name is so sacred and cannot be used casually as we sometimes do. Now this man, who was lame, had been sitting by this well-traveled gate every day for a long time, and everyone had seen him. Thus, when he was suddenly healed, people ran together to Solomon's porch, which is also on the temple lot, quote, wondering. You have to picture this scene. Peter and John are standing before all the people, and the well-known invalid beggar is standing tall and erect by their sides. Peter said, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. We are hearing here both a witness and a rebuke. You are the ones who were quiet and let the Holy One of Israel be crucified. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It is through the merits and mercy of Christ that we are healed, and in no other way. Peter tells them that they are the children of the Abrahamic covenant. Because of this, God sent Jesus to you first to bless you, and you turned instead to your iniquities. Now it was evening, and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came to them and laid hands on them. These leaders were grieved because Peter and John were preaching the resurrection of Christ, and this day 
5,000 responded. Crucifying Jesus had not solved their problem because his power continued. Peter and John were now brought before the same players who just a few weeks earlier had interrogated Jesus, Annas and Caiaphas. As former high priest and current high priest, these are the power brokers in Jerusalem, and they have a lot riding on the next question. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Peter is filled with the Holy Ghost, and herein lies the boldness with which he responds, Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. The Jewish leaders said, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. These snakes who had murdered Jesus were really stuck because everyone at the temple had seen the evidence of the miracle. A man who had been lame forty years from his birth now walked. And being let go, Peter and the apostles went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. These days that follow are a time of great missionary work. The apostles are doing just as they had been instructed, to preach the gospel. Miracles are wrought, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. I like that description, that it is multitudes that are flocking. This idea of a shadow of Peter having such power might at first seem strange to us, but we remember that when the woman with an issue of blood just touched the hem of Jesus' robe, she was healed in Luke chapter 8. Paul sent his handkerchief in Acts chapter 19 to the sick and the illness departed from them. Wilfred Woodruff told this story about Joseph Smith. When we left Brother Noble, the prophet Joseph went with those who accompanied him from the other side to the banks of the river to return home. While waiting for the ferry boat, a man of the world, knowing of the miracles which had been performed, came to him and asked him if he would not go and heal two twin children of his, about five months old, who were both lying sick nigh unto death. They were some two miles from Montrose. The prophet said he could not go, but after pausing some time, he said he would send someone to heal them, and he turned to me, this is Wilford Woodruff, and said, You go with the man and heal his children. He took a red silk handkerchief out of his pocket and gave it to me, and told me to wipe their faces with the handkerchief when I administered to them and they should be healed. He also said unto me, As long as you will keep that handkerchief, it shall remain a league between you and me. I went with the man, and did as the prophet commanded me, and the children were healed. 
I have possession of the handkerchief unto this day. Of course, certain Jewish leaders are not going to let this alone, seeing church leaders like Peter spread the gospel like a fire. They said that Peter and the apostles intend to bring this man, Jesus, blood upon us. Filled with indignation, they laid their hands again upon Peter, and this time thrust him into a prison. But an angel of the Lord came by night and opened the doors and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Meanwhile, the high priest called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel, then sent officers to prison for Peter to be examined by them. This is clearly the 71-member Sanhedrin and the eldership of the people, the core of the group who had tried Jesus. Caiaphas means business. But the officers came back reporting that the doors of the prison were shut safely, the guards were standing, yet the prison was empty. Another came with the astonishing news that Peter was in the temple preaching. For all of us, it is vital to know that there is no prison so dark, so strong, so deep, but that God can visit us there and free us. Our prisons may not be bars and walls, but we sometimes feel that bondage. He can free us. So the officers went to the temple and led Peter and the other apostles back without violence, fearing the people, which says a lot for the power of the people. When Peter and the apostles were brought before this powerful and august body, the leaders of the Jews, he again arose like a lion. They asked, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. I love that. We ought to obey God rather than men. I think that is going to be one of the critical tests of each of our lives. This, of course, cut the Jewish leaders to the heart. Then a voice of reason stood up. It is a famous member of the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel. He was the teacher of Paul and son of another famous rabbi known as a renowned teacher named Hillel. He told the group to let the apostles alone and reminded them previously of a man named Theodos who boasted himself to be somebody, gathered 400 followers, and when he was slain, his followers scattered and his influence came to nothing. Judas of Galilee was another man who had gathered followers who also dispersed after his death. Gamaliel advised with prophetic words, Refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. I love that counsel. He was so smart. Again, we are reminded of what the Lord told Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail in Doctrine and Covenants Section 121, verse 33. How long can rolling waters remain impure? What power shall stay the heavens? 
as well might man stretch forth his puny arm to stop the Missouri River in its decreed course, or to turn it upstream, as to hinder the Almighty from pouring down knowledge from heaven upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. God cannot be stopped. What we see in these chapters, too, is how majestic Peter has become. He was always quick to defend the Savior, acting in strength, standing tall. Yet before this same body, just a few weeks before, Peter had denied that he knew the Lord. Now such timidity and fear has been set aside, and he has become the mighty Peter, witness of Jesus Christ. It gives me hope that the Lord, working through the Holy Ghost, can take us all on a similar journey. We're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this has been Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. You can find the transcript at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash podcast and read the magazine every day at latterdaysaintmag.com. Next week, we will be studying Acts chapters 6 through 9. What wilt thou have me do? Have a wonderful week of studies. We'll see you next time.